Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a literal dream team whose recent documentary has been making waves on the festival circuit, all the while bringing fans back to one of horror's most iconic locations. With the documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, this filmmaking duo sought to reevaluate the legacy of one of horror's alleged gayest films and its star, and in the process have taken audiences on a journey that is emotional, enlightening, and an absolutely crucial slice of queer history, horror, or otherwise. Please welcome to the show, Roman Kimienti and Tyler Jensen. Hello. Hello. That was a beautiful introduction. It Can you really write was... our synopsis for us? <laughs> it, it's an extremely difficult movie to summarize. Well, I think it's, it's as I said at the beginning, it's, it's a beautiful movie, but it's so impactful. And I want to dig into that a little bit today because obviously when we discuss queer history and queer horror history especially, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 gets brought up a lot. Uh, on the very first episode of Dead for Filth, when I had Jeffrey Reddick on as the first guest, it was like the first movie out of his mouth. And there is a reason for that. And as horror fans yourselves, I think that that was something that you probably took into consideration when you decided to go on the long journey of making a documentary about it. But before we go there, before we even touch upon that, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest? And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why do you think horror appeals to you or why your audience is drawn to horror? But why horror? So hmm. I'll start. Take it away, Roman. All right. <laughs> um, so why horror? Yes. Uh, Tyler and I were actually talking about this yesterday and he actually had a, a fabulous answer. It did. It was actually what were we applying? it to? I, I think it was actually about filmmaking. Yeah, it's uh, I said it. I remember being in film school and there were they had all these people come in to talk to us from the industry. They're like, most of you will not make it. In fact, if you are not absolutely certain that you are supposed to be here, go the fuck home. Because if you can be scared, you should be. And if you don't have the passion to deal with the bullshit, you're not going to make it. So, But, but every- I also view that just in terms of, of the viewers. So if, if you can be scared, you should be. Meaning the reason... If you're watching horror and it's impacting you, mm-hmm. there's a reason for it. It doesn't mean that's something that's bad. And and the whole point of the movie is to get through an arc where you there's a new discovery at the end in the main character or you know, they're finding some way to conquer something. And you can't conquer something you're not scared of. So I don't know, it's it I mean for me personally, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was the very first horror movie I was able to brave sitting through as a kid and I felt different at the end of it and I don't know if it was just serendipity that got me watching that one that was starring a male lead right and I could relate to that as a as a gay soon to be gay kid but I don't know I felt different and then I was like infatuated with horror after that and I and I was mentioning to you earlier I think without realizing it that I was it probably came to me at the right time. It was junior high school. It was the 1980s and kids are awful. And I felt like for the first time, maybe I had found my escape from all that. And Peaches Christ actually touches on this topic in the movie. And that was very special for me. You know, it's in the 1980s, horror really was geared towards kids, right. even though not technically, but it was. And we loved it. Well, it's interesting because uh, you reference the attachment to 
the male lead or the final boy and a broader discussion. And it's something I've talked with Peaches about, but also with a lot of guests about uh, when you look at the horror movies of the 80s specifically and even going back uh, to the late 70s, starting with Halloween onward, there does seem to be this attachment to the idea of final girl and uh, the representation of otherness that they embody because we often discussing horror when we're talking about otherness, it's easy to go to the monster and say, I I connect with the creature from the Black Lagoon or Frankenstein's monster because they're inherently outsiders. But it's more close to home when you look at a final girl, whether it's Ginny in Friday the 13th Part 2 or Laurie Strode, and they're always kind of like outside of the popular circle, but they so desperately want to fit in. Mm -hmm. And then the idea that we have Jesse Walsh who embodies that, but also embodies this this other otherness that I don't even know that the world was quite ready to tackle at the time. But what I think is really interesting about what you both were saying about the path of horror being kind of parallel to the path of filmmaking, I've never had guests say that before, but making movies is scary, and it's a rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just think that's really cool that uh, you equated that in, in your, your own journeys. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel like the journey to make this movie was like being a final girl. Like, there's no guarantee that you will survive the night. There's no guarantee that, you know, whatever you make is going to resonate with anybody. But it feels like that that aha moment when you realize like, oh, this works. People really like it. And it it was all worth it. Right. Suddenly it was like, OK, I we- defeated the killer and I can tell the story now. Definitely. We well, we also found ourselves at the lowest point where you're like, we'll never get out of this, right? You know, right? It was, it was in. You have to go through a whole journey, and then you also doubt yourself. It's the whole. We were totally Nancy Thompson, Jesse Walsh. <laughs> like it was absolutely <laughs> right. That's right. what you have to go th- with a documentary, at least, because we don't have like a written script like that. You know, like a narrative that you can follow and planned for well it's it's fascinating too because any movie is a herculean effort to make Mm -hmm. but documentaries i feel doubly so because they uh can sometimes take years and uh so i want to i want to dig into that a little bit roman you mentioned that you had seen nightmare 2 and that was sort of the first horror movie that set you on the path of horror movies so there is sort of this serendipitous journey that you eventually make a movie about that first horror movie but how do you two as filmmakers connect how did you meet and and decide to go on this journey together it's actually really interesting like i'm a huge horror nerd and i find this intense um a magnetic pull to other people who are also into horror. I met Roman and I are both uh, freelance filmmakers. I'm mostly on the editing side. He does mostly sound. We met randomly on a job. I was re-editing a gay dating reality show, and he was doing the sound for it. I overheard him talk to his the producer about starting Scream Queen. That they hadn't started shooting it, but they were going to do it. He's like, I'm going to make a documentary about. Mark Patton from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. You know, it has a really gay, strong gay subtext. And without, like, saying hello to anybody or, like, I just looked you across just the room. You sat there quiet. I pulled up the sleeve of my T-shirt and showed him my Freddy Krueger telephone tattoo, which I'm like, this, if you know what this is, like, we're best friends. And he automatically knew what it was. It's like, oh, we'll talk. Because clearly we're cut from the same cloth. I mean... Even with the way I came on board with Mark, it was really just like 
I reached out, things just grew. It was, for whatever reason, like Mark and me and Tyler all sort of use our intuition. So did I ask for his resume? What did I have to prove my credentials? Like we all just got a sense and things just got rolling. So I just called Tyler right after we got home and I was like, so you want to make this movie with me or what? Absolutely. And that was it. And then I never went home. Like I, like I, <laughs> I volunteered to edit it. I'm like, I will edit your film if you bring me to Florida so I can meet Freddy Krueger and Elvira and Mark Patton. And then I get there and I'm like, okay, mm. let me shoot this. Let me help you tell the story. So I think one of the, the things that I'm the most proud of that we were able to do was that, so Florida was where they were having the first Elm Street 2 reunion and we didn't know what we were going to get. So it's not like we called everybody and said, hey, meet us there. We're doing this movie. Sit down with us because it was too chaotic. So I just said, let's just close our eyes and charge everything on a credit card and go <laughs> do this and see what we get. And what we get will determine what kind of movie we can make. And we bum rushed we, it. We got it. super lucky in the <laughs> sense that the conven- it was a first time convention. I mean, technically, it was the first time we ever went to a horror convention. Mm-hmm. But from the, what we got, it was like the most poorly run convention ever. <laughs> it was way under attended. Um, John Waters writes about it in his new book, Mr. Know-It-All, as like one of the only conventions that ever stiffed him. Ooh. So he like everybody like we had. A, luckily, there was not enough people to like fill the tables for the actors to keep signing autographs. So they were allowed to like step away for 20 minutes and talk to us. And if that hadn't happened, I don't know if we would been able to like go yeah. full stream ahead on the rest of the project. It's and it's interesting because I don't want to reveal too much about the documentary because of course I'm encouraging people to go see it, but as we're discussing things, we will like touch upon different issues and and, and moments. But as someone who uh, has long had a foot in the convention world, even seeing that footage, I had like PTSD. Mm-hmm. I was just watching it. I was just like, oh, my God, because right, it's very right. much a thing where uh, it's it's very emotional. Like one of yeah. the best parts of this whole experience is watching Mark interact with fans. And you realize how similar all of our stories are. Right. All of us, for some reason, had like a childhood trauma or something really dark in their life. Just they, feeling alone. Feeling alone. They connected with this film series, with this character, and they feel obligated to come find these actors and tell them those stories because for whatever reason, their performance, their film, helped them out of a really dark place. And I find that that's why I am kind of drawn to horror. It's like I love watching a slasher movie. I love watching anything where someone is going through the worst things imaginable way beyond your comprehension and yet they can find a way out and i find that is a very therapeutic thing for people to watch and i i think i feel like more people should watch slasher movies no i think that uh horror has horror can be truly great catharsis because you can place your fear into what you see on screen and it allows you in 90 minutes or two hours to sort of have the relief that you don't get from the existential fear of actual existence. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something very healing about it that, you know, to the outside world, any horror fan who is committed to the genre has heard from other people like, how can you like that stuff? It's sick. Right. But I've never met a nicer community of people. Mm-hmm. I, I remember being a kid and being obsessed with these movies, and I always loved 
interviews with Wes Craven because he was so he had such a way of talking about fear and horror and making you feel smart about it. And you're right. like, I'm not actually here to see all the blood and guts. Like that's a bonus sometimes, right. but it there's there's a deeper conversation to be had. Well, in early episodes of the show, there was a Wes Craven quote that I used to trot out a lot to the point that people on Twitter were like, he's just going to say it every week. So it's been about 50 episodes, listeners. I'm going to say it again, (laughs) but it's relevant here. But Wes Craven did famously say, we don't go to horror movies for fear. We go to them for release. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Right, right. Because especially, too, when you feel like the outsider and you uh, are looking for any shred or semblance of yourself. You are gravitating towards art that is also outsider art, so it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One thing that that also I noticed was it's not exclusively gay horror fans that feel this way, right? In regards to Nightmare Two, so a lot a, a lot of the heterosexual audience loves they relate to Jesse as well. Like if you were an outsider, it you know if you were a nerd in school, like you felt the same way. If you weren't, then you probably hate that that sequel. But, you know. I I think it's really interesting. I am a few years younger than Roman, and I came to the Nightmare on Elm Street series halfway through. I have an older sister. She used to babysit me, and I was supposed to be in bed at night, and I would, like, sneak out of my room and watch the TV through the couch cushions. Mm-hmm. And she would watch, you know, I think Pet Cemetery was my first movie, and it destroyed me. And then eventually, talk about a heavy trauma movie. Oh my god, no! My older sister convinced me that Zelda lived in her basement, and (laughs) if I didn't do something, if I didn't like go get her a pop from the fridge, I'm from Minnesota. I love your sister, by the way. Yeah, no, I love her too. Um, She actually just had a son, and she named it Freddie. So I'm very, I'm like, girl, you did that for me. Thank you. Um, But no, she would like Tyler. If you don't get me a pop, I'm gonna feed you to Zelda, and like. (laughs) I actually I have home movies of her doing this and my father just video recording it while I'm screaming bloody murder like tell her to stop but <laughs> beyond that so she would rent Nightmare on Elm Street I think I saw the fourth one first and I saw them all out of order three and four were kind of like my go-to it took me like 10 years to see the first one but I always skipped over the second one because it had this reputation of like being dumb or being not scary so like I just completely disregarded it I maybe saw it once on television, but in my obsession with Freddy Krueger, like it was not part of the equation. It's interesting when considering the legacy that two took on with fans as well. And there is this onus, uh, maybe justly earned or maybe not, where the discussion when this movie comes up, people like to say it's the gayest horror movie ever. But what I don't think gets discussed enough is that when you really unpack the Elm Street franchise, the whole thing's queer. And no one really, like, so to put all of this on Jesse, maybe because of, like, male heteronormativity and what we expect out of boys, as opposed to what we expect out of girls. Mm -hmm. But I can track across this franchise, and it's something I've not really seen discussed. Nancy learning to face a bully and stand up to a bully that's something queer kids relate to. Alice having to draw from the strengths of every member of her community, that's something queer people can relate to. Mm -hmm. Elm Street has a queer thread all through it, and it's all about queer empowerment. So for the franchise fans to kind of turn like a venomous eye to this one that seems overtly gay, to me, feels like they sort of missed the point of everything they're celebrating. Well, I I don't think that that 
um, I don't think it was labeled that officially until right. well into the 90s. I've We've spoken to people recently who saw Freddy's Revenge when it came out, and they said, oh, I totally th- knew that. I caught that. Okay, maybe, but I didn't, and I, I was a kid. Right. Maybe too young for that. Were you pre-sexual at the time? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel Which like a, why. a lot of our generation, like, we weren't, Picking up on those things, but I right think away. it's when the slasher movies start, were a little out of fashion in the '90s, where that became like, oh, that's the gay one. That's when people were really kind of trying to weed through what's good and what's not. And there was no Elm Street for quite a while until that new Nightmare movie came out. So one of the things that you just mentioned is sort of the idea that there were people who early on were like, I always saw it. And then even in the documentary, there are people attached to the film. The director, Jack Shoulder, himself did not see a gay narrative in this movie. And and I'm really fascinated with this discussion because when the movie comes up now, fans are uh, very quick to say, how could they not know? But you're looking at the lens of time that in 1985, when the AIDS crisis is ravaging the country, and no one wants to say the word gay, there's a willful ignorance of this this culture that Jesse goes into a bar, and if you're in Omaha and you've never heard of gay people, you're like, yeah, it's a leather bar. Not a leather bar, a biker bar. Right, there, right. There are no biker bars, not like that. But if there are, I want to go to there. <laughs> <laughs> so how how has that been in terms of like, just visiting the history of this, the people who claim to know, and then just looking at the the cultural shift of the awareness. Well, remember the other night I started the conversation by saying, um, really how we met was that the what pulled us all together was the fact that I'm tired of being a punchline. Right. You know, I'm older now, and I'm looking back on my life saying, I don't want to waste any more time. I don't want any more taken from me. Right. And that and that kind of came about when I was thinking, I mean, I guess Nightmare 2 is the representation of that for me because I always loved the movie and I never thought there was anything different about it that should be criticized. I mean, okay, I don't love the ending of the movie, but you know, we know how movies are made. They get flip-flopped around, the editing is bananas. I just hated the fact that it was like gay and bad. Right. equals bad. And I, I never, as soon as that became the topic of conversation, I got really resentful, like, okay, so I like it. So therefore there's a problem with it. I don't know. It just seemed, it just seemed like such an excuse to just be homophobic. Right. That's it. Do you think the film's ending lends itself to that though? I don't. Well, my personal opinion is I think by the time you get to the ending if you're following that narrative, you don't care anymore. Right. <laughs> it does kind of fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. If you're following that narrative, if when I watched it as a kid, I wasn't watching it with that subtext in mind. I was just like, oh, my God, this is because I loved the atmosphere of horror movies. I wasn't watching for the kills. I was watching for the music. I love ghost stories. You know, and this was this like brooding exorcist type movie. And I loved it. And then by the time Freddy comes out of Jesse's stomach, you're just like horrified. So at that point, you're like, where do we go from here? 
I think this film actually has some of the franchise's most visceral moments. The the, the Freddie emerging from Jesse's body, but also you know if you were an Elm Street fan, what line to me to me is more iconic than "You're all my children now" because that's literally Freddie's mo. Like right. he wants to, <clears throat> to rule the children of Elm Street, and uh, I don't know. It gave us so much. Obviously, I've been a fan all along. But. Yeah. Right. Well, Jack Shoulder had said he had no idea. Right. And. I wasn't there. I'm not him. I don't know. Right. I do know what he did explain to us, the the nightmare of re-editing the movie and what they had to do to make things work. And I think as soon as you do major shifts in, in, in chapters and stuff, the story, I who knows? But I have to say that, like, unless your edit is completely following your original storyline, you could come up with something a little different in the end. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you think uh, uh, what did he say about the the intentionalist smoke? fallacy? It's like right. his his purpose and idea for what the movie is and what the audience sees are two different things, and both are correct. I don't, I'm probably butchering that, but yeah, yeah. It's he's not responsible for how you interpret the movie, and that's kind of the beauty of it. You can it can mean something different to different yeah. people. The I think the the conversation around this movie for the longest time was like was it intentional? Was did everyone know what they were doing? And I feel like during the making of this, that became the least interesting part for us. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote that one of the the fans says in the movie. He's like, whether it was intentional or not, it works. I also think too. There's a kind of great joy if that's the right word about the refocus and reframing of the discussion of this movie because how many horror films let alone sequels can claim this level of you know dissection and discussion right and in that way i think it makes it as impactful as a nightmare on elm street Mm -hmm. Uh, and i don't know many sequels that then take on this social you know badge even if unintentionally so that we're still talking about it mm-hmm. to this degree, that a documentary can be made and made with such import and impact. And that's got to be, you know, I, I can't think of another horror sequel that does it. I can't either. <laughs> <laughs> so you had mentioned a little earlier uh, that there is sort of a genesis of this documentary from another do- documentary. It, it sort of begins with Mark being rediscovered for the Never Sleep Again documentary. And sometime in between Never Sleep Again and the beginning of this project, you, Roman, had connected with Mark. Mm-hmm. So how did that initial discussion uh, begin? Because we now know Tyler's entry into the story. Mm-hmm. But how do you and Mark Patton intersect? L- literally in the middle of the night, I thought, whatever happened to that actor, Mark Patton? And it's the most surprising thing to me is that all of this time had passed since I'd seen the movie, loved the movie, been a fan. And then all of a sudden, wait, why have I never looked that up before? Because he just so silently left the room. Right. Um, usually you hear you see him in something else. And there's a couple things. And, it, and he was a good actor. You know, right. when you think about early slasher movies, even nightmare sequels, you can tell the caliber of acting. And and I just looked him up and I noticed he was very present on social media and he will write to you, right. which was rare, you know. 
Um, and I just ingested what he was talking about. He said he wanted to tell his story. I didn't know all the details, but I read a little bit. I was really surprised to find out about HIV and Hollywood blacklisting and things like that. So I wrote to him and we just started talking and it grew from there. I went to meet him in Maryland. We were screening the Dream Master for an audience in a theater with Lisa Wilcox and Joanne Willett. And we just hit it off instantly. We sat at a coffee shop and talked for hours about what we wanted Scream Queen to be, the direction it it should take. Um, And he knew, he had a sense of how to tell this story. It wasn't about Freddy Krueger. Right. It was about what happened in the 1980s to live through that. Because the 1980s have always been an extremely defining era for me. It was it was the music, the fashion, all of it, the toys, the cartoons. Right. It was so awesome. And that's why there's a lot of nostalgia there. But I was just young enough to not have to face the horrors of the 80s. Right. I could feel it, you know. Uh, being called a faggot was something that, you had to suffer every day. And it, even as a kid, you knew like there's nothing worse. You know, you are the lowest. At least that's how it felt, you know. So, Mar- I guess that's how I had such an emotional attachment to Mark's story is it brought this up for me. I'm, I'm a step down from him. Right. So, I guess in a way I felt like it this is my time to do something as a mentor for the generations behind me. So Right. I think a lot of this movie came down to uh mentorship and how hard it is as a queer child to like grow up and find your like chosen family. Because your you know, your birth parents, they don't necessarily most of them don't know anything about the lifestyle and have nothing but horror stories of what they think it is. Right. So they can't prepare you for anything, and you're essentially thrown into this other world that you have to navigate on your own. And it's hard to find uh, an older generation to, like, care and nurture you without sexualizing you or making the uh, I mean, a lot of choices. them are, were gone. So it was, A lot of them were gone, very, absolutely. I felt like I was definitely out there swimming by myself when I first moved to San Francisco. I was 18 years old. It was the mid-90s. and Well, and it it is true, too. Uh, Earlier you referred to a conversation that took place the other night, and what you were referring to was uh, we were all on stage together briefly for one of the Outfest screenings that I moderated a QA, and a and we talked a little bit about generational situations involved in the film how you know you mark uh and tyler all represent different generations coming together to make this movie Mm -hmm. and when you think about the generations of lgbtq people there are so many gay men that are our peers and and us we literally stand on the shoulders of a generation that is not here anymore and i think for the generation that's coming after that's a really difficult thing to wrap your mind around Mm -hmm. because when you think of tragedy tragedy on a micro scale is something you can conceptualize like the loss of one person feels huge Mm -hmm. but you can you can see it but once you start talking about the numbers of the aids crisis it's like a few generations removed they they don't understand Mm -hmm. so they just compartmentalize it away and so i'm kind of wondering for you at what point and I'm sure it had to have, 
did this documentary become less about Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and more about queer history? Oh, absolutely. At what point? Um, and was that always the aim? Yeah. Uh, yeah. From the get-go. I'm trying to think of where the turning point was for I'm, Tyler and I. I do remember when I walked into this project, you pitched it as the nightmare version of Madonna's Truth or Dare. Mm-hmm. And we wanted we wanted something that was like funny and touching and completely like uh, warts and all, like you can see everything as it happens. And I am embarrassed to say that I had not seen Truth or Dare. And I, I had him. <laughs> yeah. I, so. I recited the whole thing for him. Right. So now <laughs> I get it. All right. Well, I am going to do a brief pin here because what did you think of Truth or Dare? Oh, it was great. I mean, it's not a film I get to talk about on Dead for Filth a lot, but like literally one of the coolest documentaries of all time. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I kept having a trouble with that. I'm like, you know that she's like performing half of this movie. Like it's a concert documentary. Like, right. How are we going to get Mark to perform? Like what? What's that? What's that other element? So we had to kind of we did structure the film as like a road documentary. You see him going from convention to convention, but like you needed that other element to step in. And because I am a generation behind Mark and Roman, like I didn't have those historical elements to pull from and draw on. I had to do a lot of research and try to figure out what exactly mm-hmm. I didn't know. Right. Well, what I do think is an interesting parallel between them and saying how you structured with that in mind is when you watch Truth or Dare, Madonna has an awareness and she always has. There's this sort of like she knows the camera's there and she knows Mm -hmm. to give the people what they want, even in this Madonna version of reality. (laughs) And uh, and I I don't think this is a spoiler because Mark says this at the very beginning of your documentary that when you exist in that space, one of your jobs truly is to give people what they want to see, regardless of the demons and the hurt and whatever's going on behind the scenes. Yep. And I'm sure that Mark would be thrilled to know that I'm sitting and comparing him to Madonna. <laughs> uh, but it's either Cher, Madonna, or Beyonce. He's in between there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, who wouldn't want to be? And he worked with Cher, so it's yep. like... Let's just do the checkoff list. Yeah, he'll, right. he'll be up there with... She's the queen of all of them, so we'll push it up with Cher. Um, yeah, I think that for... First of all, he he really... Fa- I think he introduced that parallel to me, and I was like, I love the movie. I've watched it a million times. And I think with, with Blunt, or Truth or Dare, you love watching Madonna. You remember everyone else in the movie and their comments and right. how they reacted to her Warren Beatty rolling his eyes you know like the 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 she doesn't want to live off camera she doesn't right. want to live off camera and all the but the the low points too she goes and visits her mother's grave and you know yes she's got cameras on her but she's showing you things she doesn't have to and it was really an audacious documentary in terms of queer representation mm-hmm. in the time that it was made. Because First time I saw that. I loved it. The gay dancers kissing. Like, you never saw gay men kiss like that. I mean, I think I saw it just young enough when the guy gives the blowjob to the bottle. I'm like, I don't... What's happening? That was <laughs> Madonna who did that. Oh, that's right. <laughs> they they egg her on to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Ugh. And I was just like, I don't understand. I don't get it. Oh, I got it. It was great. <laughs> we went home every day after school to watch it. It was awesome. Um, but 
Okay, so there's all the that's such a groundbreaking documentary. Thank right. you, Madonna. That was amazing. Um, but it's also that you got to see the other side of somebody like that. Right. And right. I can't there's not very many people that would do that. Welcome you into their home and actually not clean up first, you know. Right. And um I think that's what we were really modeling it after. You know, so obviously she had a lot of footage that she could use. She was on tour. So she was doing performances so she could have the the energy and the the entertainment there. We had to we had to be a little crafty there. Mark Mark disappeared, and we didn't really have a lot of stuff to work with. Right. We knew that the HIV, we knew that AIDS was our end goal in terms of that's really where you're coming in for Elm Street, but we're going to talk about this. Right. And most people don't realize just how much it influenced Freddy's Revenge the 1980s, the everyone who lived at that time, because I think that the trauma people just got through and had to stop talking about. It's true. And again, horror movies all throughout were reflecting the the rise of AIDS and the rise of Reagan. Uh, But very few get that finger pointed at it the way Elm Street 2 did. Mm -hmm. And it's very it's just an interesting discussion because, you know, I just discussed what I believe are the queer parallels of the whole Elm Street franchise, but the broader discussion when you're thinking about how Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson used Scream to criticize the rules of horror. One of the rules, as we know, is don't have sex or you'll die. But that doesn't exist until the 80s. Before then, people were just banging all across horror movies and like if they lived, they did lived, <laughs> and if they didn't, they didn't. Mm-hmm. But that, like, the fact that that runs parallel with the rise of AIDS is not a mistake, no matter what people want to say. And so it's just really what I admire so much about this documentary and this this effort that you took on is that it shows that, you know, these movies aren't just movies. They're literal cultural yearbook moments. Mm -hmm. And that horror truly can be powerful in the way that it represents things. And that, you know, sometimes the real horror is what's going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, whenever I think about horror movies that had a positive impact on me, it always goes back to Elm Street movies. They didn't really exploit girls like a lot of the others did. Right. I mean, yeah, girls are are the heroes and they're being chased. But it's not like it's it. The sec the sexual predatory aspect wasn't there, even though we Freddie's a whole topic on it. You know, uh, yeah. they came out as <laughs> we all heroes. just gloss over that. Yeah, yeah, let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> but like you know, I just remember being the perfect age for when the Dream Master came out, and it was so MTV and cool looking, and you know, he says all these like really witty come. come uh, comments to the I don't know it just was like all those characters really inspired me all of them they were so cool and I just remember being like I don't know they no I yeah. I, I felt the same way as a kid I always watched these movies I would identify with the final girl I distinctly remember being six years old practicing karate in my backyard <laughs> pretending that I was Lisa Wilcox about to fight Freddie and I was just like I I guess in the same way that like my friends in school were watching Rambo or Terminator 2 I'm like I didn't identify 
with the men in those movies and those roles because they knew they were the hero from the beginning. Right. They didn't have to go through a journey where they were like, oh, now I got to save the fucking world. These women in this series were like, you know, had greatness thrust upon them and they had to find strength within themselves to survive the day. And I was like, that's that's what I can identify with. Yeah. No, it's true because I think that as queer people, the narrative, societally speaking, is that we're never going to be the heroes. But we have to fight upward. And, you know, merely by living our truth, that's heroic. I mean, I'm not patting myself on the back. But I'm just saying, think of what everything that we're asked to overcome. And that is, I think, why so many queer people are attached to the final girls. Like, and there is a, a draw there. Um, I always used to love uh, the montage when Lisa, when uh, Alice is, is gearing up for battle. Oh, my God. And she jumps to the mirror. Yeah. I listen to that Dramarama song like once every two days just to like pump myself up. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so, you know, we've spent a lot of time discussing the Elm Street movies. And uh, one of the things when you take on a journey like this, especially to make a whole film about the history of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, but more about the person who starred in that movie and his journey and what that movie did to him. Uh, it's obviously going to reframe your experience. So my question for you two is like, obviously there was a love for Elm Street and a love for Elm Street 2 when you went out to make this film. But how has your relationship with A Nightmare on Elm Street changed since making Scream Queen? I, I think I'm like on a pause right now. Like I love Freddy Krueger, I love Elm Street, but at the same time it's like, Wes Craven talked a lot about the philosopher's curse where like you can live in ignorance and you can ignorance is bliss. And the minute you climb up that mountain to enlightenment, you're going to have a hard time like being happy again. And I identify that a little bit with this thing that I loved so much as a child. Like now I've told that story. I've lived through those stories. I've met these people who were connected to it and I don't necessarily have that same magic with it right that, that brought me here and now i still love it i still hold it very near and dear to me but it doesn't i don't have that same sense of wonder about it now because i've seen behind the curtain i've met the 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 oz great and powerful yeah i mean i generally like to keep my opinions my own not that i won't talk about it or share it but it's like i don't try to expect anybody else to have the same Experience And so now that we've shared the experience with so many people everywhere, it's hard for me to not think of it that way and how all these outsiders identify, all these outsiders love Jesse. Well, I'm also not, I'm a lot older now. Right. So I'm viewing it differently. And, and it took me a minute. And now I'm kind of, I'm looking back at the first few, few movies and I'm loving them again for the fact that like, wow, that's so cool. All the... DIY of this like that they were able to do all the I'm I guess I'm looking at it now from like a production standpoint and right. I'm fascinated from it at that angle and I'm not really invested in the story as much as just how it feels and how it looks and how it sounds so I guess you know having gone through this I'm now looking at it above well and I think there's probably something to be said and I don't know if you've had the opportunity to stop and think about this but when you take the time to make something like 
Scream Queen, which is, is, is no small feat, you have now become a part of Elm Street history because you have contributed to the narrative of the greater discussion of these films. So while you have peered behind the curtain for someone else looking at the Elm Street legacy, you are also now behind the curtain. And that's got to be cool. Right. I just had this thought the other day, like if you had asked me at 10 years old, like, oh, you're going to grow up to make a Freddy Krueger movie. Right. I probably would have said like, oh, of course, (laughs) that's what I want to do. And to be here now, I'm like, it's kind of an out of body experience. We just had our red carpet thing at Outfest the other night and Robert England was there. Mark was there. Lisa, sorry. Kim was there. Robert Russler was there. And I'm just like twirling around like, is this real life? Hmm. It's definitely... I need a minute right. to feel that um, because I feel like I'm I've I feel like we've been so first of all when we started this film right it wasn't cool to be a horror nerd that wasn't like a that wasn't even something people said right in fact I even right before I met Tyler like you could just click Mark Patton online and it was all it said was like faggot I hate him this is the worst so right. lame you know now like you know, it's harder to find that. It's definitely some, I feel like I've been kind of like, not fighting. Tyler and I have had a a really protective circle of fans around us. Right. Great support from the get-go, but at the same time, like, we were the weirdos. Yeah. You know? We are the weirdos, mister. We are the weirdos. (laughs) Like, in the 80s, even in the 90s, gay people weren't known to be horror fans. Like I have always loved it and I never really sat down with gay friends to watch it. That was just my experience. It was me with straight kids or by myself. And now, I mean, people are, the gay people are coming out again. Yeah. Right. Horror no, fans. As a kid, that was the ritual for me. It was watching, renting horror movies, sleep, uh, sleepovers. It was the like, Oh, you guys, you know, are you man enough to like watch the scariest movie ever? Mm-hmm. Can you handle the Evil Dead? Are you ready for it? Yeah, it's a it's a <laughs> it chest was, pounding. Kinda. It was definitely like, oh, you think that's scary? You got to watch this. Right. And then most of those friends that I had ended up being gay, and like we had this connection. But and then later in my life, like I would go, I would actively seek out like the worst, cheesiest horror movies I could find, and have a community with me to watch them, make fun of them and just appreciate all of it. It wasn't about it being a great movie or necessarily scary. It was about this communal experience. Well, and that's true, right? Because I think horror is one of those genres, maybe the only genre, science fiction, I guess, uh, that has that community. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we say cult film, cult literally means community. The idea that there is something shared about the experience of these movies and uh, it's interesting that you say, you know, there were no horror nerds that were like out about it when because mm-hmm. I remember that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, doing the work and the writing and, and the thing that things that I've done. I remember when I would be like, I'm going to do this talk about queer horror. And people would be like, we don't want that because right. it's, it's too niche. No and one's interested yeah. in that. I'm like, I guarantee that if you knew that 90 percent of all the horror movies you like were made by queer people, you might actually have a different take on that. But now it took till now for us to really be talking about it. And and even just last month when Fangoria released their uh, gay pride T-shirt, right? Sam Weinman, right. put that out. I got one. The comment yeah. section of that was overwhelmingly positive. However, still a good chunk of it was like, 
why why do we have to hear about this garbage? Just go back, literally, go back and talk about what we care about. Right, right. And but he, then there'll be the same ones that are like, "Yay, a new Chucky movie!" Well, I got secrets for you there, exactly. bro. Yeah. Oh, can we talk about how we're not how how that was a raw deal for Don? Yeah, it was. I mean, but what you, you know what I mean though? Like yeah, Chucky was yeah. created by a out gay man, so yeah. it's like. You can't you can't wear pinhead on your shirt and hate gay people like right. you know I still love Seed of Chucky I don't care what anybody says okay. I honestly <laughs> I think Seed of Chucky is great I love the audacious nature of the fact that they were just like Jennifer Tilly is going to play t- Tiffany and Jennifer Tilly yeah that three way call sequence where she's like. <laughs> I can hear you screaming. <laughs> like, no, I'm watching Bound on TV. Gina Gershon is finger banging me. Oh, Lord. I love that movie. Don, call me. I definitely, but I, I agree. We're not out of the woods yet. No. But the, but the demand is here, and we're all talking about it, and I'm glad. And I'm, I feel like I, I, have to, I have to step on my pedestal for a second. I've been trumpeting this always. Right. I've been a little fiery warrior since I was a kid, and I've... I feel like I want to this is the time. Right. It, it's it's happening and a lot of people are identifying with it and that makes me feel good. Well, and then let's talk about that a little bit because uh now that you're taking the documentary out into the world, it's playing festivals like Outfest. You said from the beginning you had sort of a circle of support. But now that you're out there and you're seeing this, what what has your experience been like on the road? Because I know like even before mm-hmm. getting here to L.A., you've been in San Francisco and Denver and you were in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So just tell me a little bit about this adventure. It's been incredible. This is our first feature film. And to a be even invited to these places with your first feature film is amazing right. to have a built in audience for people who are clamoring for it is maybe will never happen again in our lifetime. So we're very appreciative of it. At the same time, because it has this horror movie connection to it, a lot of people aren't necessarily like, oh, I don't like horror movies. I don't want to see this. Right. And we've had a few screenings where after the movie's all done and said, their Q&A pops up and it's women over the age of 50 who are like, "Uh, I just have to say... First of all, I've never seen a horror movie in my life, like too scary, but I came to hear your story and you have touched on something so profound and so moving that I don't have a question. Just thank you. Thank you for sharing this. Mark. So Mark really appreciates women. Right. And not there. I mean, that's a that's a whole other topic. And for the way men view women, he and I think they they recognize that. And they're, they identify with his story. So it's not just gay people. Right. It's also women who also are oppressed in the same way, but in a more insidious way. Right. Because it's not on the surface always. And they they recognize themselves in his story too. And, and we hear that all the time. Like for, for girls to leave, I get messages all the time from girls that were emotional after seeing it. And that makes me feel really good because I feel like that's actually the root of the problem. Right. And, you know, we can come together as a gay community and say, stop it. We're not going to take this anymore. But, you know, the problem's not fully going to go away until you see just how far down it goes in our society. And so we all kind of have to band together. So the fact that there would be non-horror loving, non-queer people, non-queer people. And that's the other thing. We're very, very, I'm very sensitive to the fact that this is one of the only documentaries about 
queer subject matter that will reach a straight audience. Right. And I'm very proud of that. Right. It's it's a lot of like a Trojan horse. I feel like a lot of people are coming to this for Freddy Krueger and they're going to get it, but they're going to get so much more that they aren't even aware of. Right. And I think that that's where our art needs to be. I mean, of course, we want queer art made by queer people, but we have to think, too, about I guess, for lack of a better term, reaching across the aisle. Mm -hmm. Because if we want change in the world, we need more than just queer people to see queer art and to engage in the discussion to understand what we've been going through. And this is true of every marginalized community. Like, you know, for every get out, there are still, you know, a hundred (laughs) people of color trying to make movies that are not getting seen that deserve and need to be seen. And we need more than just their communities to come out and support them. Absolutely. And so it is really, uh, I think that it is so important and the impact that this will have will further the discussion. Uh, so I can't, you know, praise you both enough for just this, because this has been, you know, something that so many of us have been thinking about and talking about this, the idea that, this genre can have this power but also the fact that you know these stories exist behind the camera too and uh i think it's just such an amazing documentary thank you thank you so much i'm so glad we definitely set out to make something that we needed when we were kids like i grew up watching you know nightmares and red white and blue and going to pieces like any documentary about horror movies i was absorbing myself with and if i had this at 10, 12 years old, I think I would have been like, oh, oh, my next five years of life are going to be okay. Like, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked about impact. We've talked about some very serious subject matter, but uh, for the sake of fun and shifting gears a little bit, (laughs) um, obviously when we're discussing queer horror and uh, movies that have queer impact, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 comes up a lot. But are there movies that are queer-coded or overtly queer in the horror canon that you enjoy? And uh, what are they? Okay, Tyler. Well, I've I've been trepidating this myself. Uh, I feel like Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 is the lesbian version of Freddy's Revenge. They would be perfect back-to-back. Like a total like queer brother-sister double feature. And I love that they're both part twos Uh as well. And they're like, they're both possession movies. They both use sexuality as the monster. I mean, Prom Night 2 gets way more literal with that in in all with like lesbianism, uh, incest, bestiality, everything is in that movie. And I feel like people need to rediscover that. We've been talking about that movie a lot because it's it, it is actually like the, the Freddy's Revenge where I remember when it came out, the commercials were horrifying. I loved them. Then it disappeared. I don't think it had a, a large theatrical run. Right. And then wasn't ever talked about again and I always loved it and then I met you and you loved it I don't think we talked about that for right away no it was our our secret that came out later but it's so good I mean <laughs> there's even a shot in that movie where she scratches her fingernails across mm-hmm. the locker like Freddy Krueger and I'm like what yeah. they, they knew what they were what? doing 
I didn't expect to be discussing the lesbian power of Mary Lou today. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But do you think, because you said there was more, di- it was more direct. There is like on screen lesbianism that takes place. And mm-hmm. this does, when we look at the course of horror, uh, lesbianism is able to be put more up front because I think. Oh, because it's sexy. It, well, because it <laughs> caters to the male gaze. Right. Not right. actual lesbians, but like no, what straight men no. think lesbians are. Long red fingernails. Yeah. yeah no. It's yeah. so fascinating um, because. Because for them to have crossed that boundary in Nightmare 2 would have never happened because it's, it's right, boys. Right, um, Which I, I feel like for the generation of men who really identify with this movie, the fact that it was so coded was what saved it. Right. Because it wouldn't you wouldn't have had this mainstream horror film out and proud like super queer and people would have been like, yeah. Like, it would have killed the genre. But because right. it was so subtextual, the queer kids at the sleepover watching this movie with their friends could enjoy it on that level and not be outed. Right. Because not everybody is comfortable coming out very young. And when they find things that, like, are just for them, they kind of hold them sacred. Mm-hmm. And we met a lot of fil- a lot of guys in the film who were like, I saw this. I was not out yet. And... I kept coming back to it because something in that movie was for me that I couldn't express to anybody else. And that I'm like, that's exactly why we're here. Awesome. Uh, So beyond Prom Night 2, any others? Oh, God. Are you Fright Night fans? Oh, God. I forgot about Fright Night. Um, I think Fright Night's super queer. I always have, yeah. Well, I already so said I'm, Seed of Chucky. That's my I'm go-to. a little torn on that, though, because I think it's I think that the story, the making of Fright Night is super queer. Interesting. I don't know if the story itself is. Right. Um, you know, the whole vampire story can obviously you can find parallels with that. But from what and it's been a little while since I've watched it, but I've, I saw it a bunch. It didn't really strike me that way, but there's just so much behind the scenes. If right. you really want to, I mean, they already made a movie about that, right? right. But, uh, but again, though, like maybe you can pick up on some of that because of it, right? Just like our film, right. Nightmare Two. I'm trying to remember what else I remember as a kid. I remember my parents didn't care what I rented until I got to a certain age, like from like five to like ten. It was. Do it. Do what you want. We don't care. Right. When I started being like a teen, it was like I remember an interview with a vampire came out, and that was like a you were absolutely too young to see this. And I feel like that that queer story of Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise raising a young daughter together was just like too radical. Okay. In the nineties, and I didn't quite put it in those words. In those, I didn't connect it as a queer story but right. looking back at it now I'm like oh of course mm. of course you know up until recently the industry considered Interview with the Vampire the most commercially successful gay movie really? which is weird because it never actually outwardly portrays the characters I mean there's coding of course all throughout mm-hmm. and, you know when Antonio Banderas shows up to seduce everybody with legs uh, <laughs> like I was here for it mm-hmm. but I, you know I, I guess again it was like the idea that we had to, in some ways, take what we were given to read between the lines. Right. And the fact that then the industry was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a gay movie, like kind of retconning the history of it. Because I don't even know that Anne Rice like set about, per se, to 
make that the case. Right. But. I do remember like the v- like we rented it from the video store. She came out at the top of the VHS holding a Lestat doll being like, <laughs> I am so proud of this movie. And I'd be like, oh, okay. This is, I had never seen that before. Usually authors hate whatever Hollywood version of their film come out. So right. to see that, I was like, oh, okay. This is the real deal. For me, I think I was more, so I was a little, it was different as a kid. I liked to play by myself a lot. Mm-hmm. And Poltergeist 2 was oh one of my favorites. So scary. I, and The Lady in White. I liked movies that were about, from the point of view of a little kid, they kind of feel alone. And, you know, they're being traumatized. The little right. girl from Halloween 4 and 5, you know, like, I that's what I always identified with because I always felt that way. And so to me, those were maybe not queer, but I think a lot of queer people can understand right. that. And so those were the, like, whenever I think about f- horror, it's always those, like, Carol Ann. That was me. <laughs> right. Uh, while we were editing this movie, I went to the MoMA in New York, and I saw a William Castle double feature of Straight Jacket and Homicidal, and I had never seen Homicidal before, and it suddenly, like, blew my mind. I loved everything about it. We show a clip of it in our film. It was, I still think it's one of the only... Uh, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give, I don't want to spoil a 70 year old movie. But. I will just say it is William Castle's, uh, his Roger Corman esque version of, of Psycho. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there's, mm-hmm. there's the, there's the reveal of the killer. And I don't think that we've seen that again. Right. It was, it's a one and done kind of thing, which I loved. It was good. I mean, and that that does speak, though. There has, uh, and again, without giving anything away, but like all of these movies we're talking about, we're we're talking about, you know, the solitude of Carol Ann and how there's anotherness to that, or like looking at the coding of movies like Hello, Hello Mary Lou, Prom Night Two, and it's just all the way back to the beginning. You know, horror has always been queer, even before cinema. Like the very first, you know, most significant vampire. In literature, Carmilla is who inspires mm-hmm. Dracula, and Carmilla is a sapphic story. You don't have Dracula without a lesbian vampire first. And there's just sort of that trajectory. James Whale makes Frankenstein, and mm-hmm. you know, if you've seen God and Monsters, there's a lot of gay shit going on behind mm-hmm. the scenes there. <laughs> so I love that movie. Me too. And yeah. I, th- I think The Bride of Frankenstein is even more queer. Like, the idea that he makes this person to try and just like, and here's your partner. It's like, no, you can't just put people together. Uh, and he does run off on his uh, his wedding night with his mentor. He's like, sorry, Elizabeth, but uh, I'm going to go with this guy. Right. Oh, well. Nice. Um, so from, from movies of yesteryear to movies of now, what have you seen recently that you like that inspires you? What are you watching? Now Apocalypse. I, I love that one. The Gregory Rocky series. Yeah. I love him. Oh, I had a really profound uh, moment with Jordan Peele's Us. Oh, yeah? That like stuck in my head for like two weeks, and I just kept having like revelations after revelations with that. Uh, that was great. What else is going on? Oh, Haunting of Hill House. Oh my God, the Netflix show. That was excellent. Like, it was excellent. Tapped into my own childhood trauma in a way that I wasn't ready for, and actually got me mm. to the point to finish this movie and like grow up essentially so from a sound perspective what they did was brilliant it was opposite everything they do and any it was very atmospheric they let things like just ride out you can hear dogs barking far in the distance it really created a sense of 
isolation without you realizing it. And as a sound engineer, I'm listening for this going, hey, there's no jump scares. They're not putting in like this subtle. It's all very natural. So as a sound engineer, do you find yourself really focusing on sound in movies? Oh, yeah. You can't help it. I can't help it. They And just like in your, Tyler, when they said we're going to ruin film for you. <laughs> right. It's the right. same with sound. When I went to school, they're like, forget it. It's all over for you. You're never going to be able to enjoy it the same way. Right. It is true when you make movies, and I, I I think that you know to people who aren't in the industry, it does sort of, in a way, take the magic away. But you discover new magic. Sure. I think it's Absolutely. a it's a two parter thing. Yeah, certainly it ruins all of your friends from watching a movie with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they will hate everything that you talk about. They're well, like you're going to ruin this for me if you overanalyze it. And the second part is when you find a movie that you don't do that to and you were just get completely sucked into you fucking love, love it. it yeah it's the it, it cracks me up when i'll be watching a movie and people are like the scene was so good i'm like those two weren't even in the room on the same day mm-hmm. like that like it makes me crazy when like i'm just like you never see them in the shot together which means they were never together right okay it, so on that note how do you feel about deep blue sea with lo cool j who was not in that movie with anybody else come on i didn't know that <laughs> like, i mean I'm here for the uh, novelty hit single that came along with the movie. Oh, like, the MTV making the video with him yeah. with the shark eyes. Look, I was like, girl, can get it. Everybody has their like kitsch thing. And if you throw a novelty song at me, I will forgive a lot. Like right, I'm like right. all of a sudden on board. Like it could be the worst movie ever. I'm like, but wait, what? There's a novelty hit single in. Right, like, right. Uh, Charlie XCX doing the soundtrack for Angry Birds movie. Yes. I'm there. I love that song. All for it. Uh <laughs> Uh, so what were we talking about? I'm so sorry. We were uh, talking about what you're watching recently. You mentioned okay. Hill House and things. How about you, Roman? I've been more in like Black Mirror is my favorite. Um, I oh, guess San Junipero for sure. Well, yeah, I like all of them though. Um, I just like how, but I also like a lot of like horror for kids. There's actually a new right. British anthology. I think it's British. Um, I forget what it is. It's it's not goosebumps. It's more mature right, than that. Right. It just came out like last year and and I just like okay, so the reason why I like stuff that's also for young adults is because they focus more on the atmosphere, which I say a lot, and like the you know, the storytelling and less on like the violence or the gore. So like you know, it's in a short story format, like the Twilight Zone or something. Right. It allows you to get a little more um intellectual I suppose <laughs> well and because I think a lot of children's horror does tackle themes that are relevant to your adolescence and growing up as yeah. well so there is a lot more analogous storytelling but what I think is really cool about those and I, I love that you bring that up is it's sort of like air quotes gateway horror I don't necessarily love that term but oh, yeah I do but, but I love absolutely. that yeah. <laughs> it, it is well the reason I don't love it is because Often what we consider to be gateway horror is the horror that does stay with you over the years. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you read R.L. Stein's Goosebumps and yes, they like now in comparison to growing up and watching an Elm Street or Saw or Us, it it is not it doesn't quite have the teeth, but if it scared you as a kid, it's the horror story you always remember. And like, you go back to it for yeah, sure. Yeah. I am I'm very attuned to that. I really liked A Quiet Place in the sense like mm-hmm. it didn't satisfy me in my horror knowledge right now, but right. I felt I just I recognized it as a great great place for a kid whose parents aren't going to let them watch R-rated movies to like oh this is scary and my parents like it too so maybe I get to watch more of these I'm actually 
I have a lot of siblings. I have a lot of nieces and nephews, and I don't get to see them very often. They live in Minnesota, and I've kind of rebranded myself as the Santa Claus of Halloween. I'm Uncle Spooky. <laughs> I give them presents. I give them um, candy adorable. And costumes and my favorite stories and movies as a kid that are age-appropriate. And it's hard. It's harder to come by those. But um, a lot of scary stories to tell in the dark. Mm. I'm excited for that movie to come out. Same. So this is called Creeped Out. This what? is the British show you were referencing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not like Goosebumps was real corny. Right. This is not. <laughs> but the like, books were great. There were. Well, I was too old for those. Oh, I like yeah. the co- yeah. I like the idea of those. There were some older ones that uh, there was a a few series that I the, the haunting hour I thought was kind of cool. Oh yeah. Uh, but creeped out is actually more for teenagers. Um, it was cool. I just, I like that. It's kind of nice to sometimes simplify and, and, and not have to be horrified and just, right. Right. You know, I did really like, are you afraid of the dark? Yeah. Obviously Canadian horror again, taking it back to the Mary Lou of it all. I love yeah. Canada makes some of my favorite stuff. I'm, I agree. Yeah. They're good. Music and movies. They're great. Black Christmas. Oh yeah. yeah. You, the, yeah. the proto slasher. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so as we wind down, uh, I have to ask, you have this documentary that is now hitting the world. Uh, you're kind of like on a whirlwind going around with it, meeting people. And obviously that's consuming a lot of your time. But one has to ask, what's next? Tyler. <laughs> oh, man. Now I have to. Okay. Uh, can okay, we talk so about this yet? If you can. Of well, course, yeah. so we have we have some We've, things that are in development right now. Been sworn to secrecy. Yeah. Um, I think that Tyler and I share a lot of similar interests. And even though we have our we, we kind of like different avenues of horror, I think there's a lot of parallels and we're combining them oh excellent so that's vague enough to keep us curious (laughs) yeah uh and uh something that i think people can be on the lookout for which leads us of course to my final question that we ask in this digital age where can people find you i am on facebook and instagram tyler ray jensen um where else do you want? oh oh like websites I don't see this is my first time in LA you can tell I'm not prepared um, <laughs> Scream Queen Documentary Scream Queen Documentary we have a website com, it's really typical cool typicalfilms.com yeah all of this theendaudio.com mm-hmm. uh, but people find us find us through the Scream Queen website I mean as soon as we get back to New York after each tour we update it we put where we've been and all that but it, it's people have been signing up for updates for festivals can I just say, though, people ask every day, 100 times a day for a DVD. When's it coming out? When's the digital thing coming out? We can't do that until it does the festival run. Right. And we're given a green light through a distributor. Like, it goes through a whole process. We're working on it. Right. Uh, and so that's why people have been signing up on the website so they can be up to date with updates. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well Facebook is where Mark is also active with us. So if you really want to see where we are all the time, like we post there pretty much daily. So, Well, thank you both so much for coming and taking time while you're here in L.A. to talk to me and uh, for digging into the history of 
Nightmare 2, but also the making of this movie in your own journey, because I think it's very important. Uh, and listeners, please, please, please keep your eyes open uh, for film festivals in cities near you that might be screening Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, because it is absolutely crucial viewing if you are a horror fan or a queer film fan or a queer horror fan or all of the combinations <laughs> of that or just that you care about film and people because god damn it you need to see this so thank you both so much this, this was, was awesome a pleasure thank you so much yeah, thank you i'm michael Verratti. this has been dead for filth yours always in glam and gore good night and good luck Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>